Well, good morning. Thank you so much, guys, for that time of leading us in worship. Grateful for the gospel and song. And good morning to all of you. I'm delighted to share the word of God with you this morning. And I invite you to turn in your Bibles if you have brought a copy. If you don't have one, grab one out of the seat in front of you and turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. We're continuing in our summer series through the book of 1 Peter. This is his letter to elect exiles. That's how he begins it. And so we're calling this sermon series Excellence in Exile. And we want you to know as pastors to you, our beloved congregation, that we love you, that we are all exiles together. And particularly as we get into this text this morning about marriage relationships, I trust that God will encourage us and even through this text, point us back towards our Savior who loves us all, Jesus Christ. So look at the text, if you will, in your Bibles as I read chapter three of 1 Peter, verses one to seven. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good, and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that, your prayers may not be hindered. And may God bless the reading of his holy, inerrant, and infallible word. Let me pray. Pray with me. Father, thank you for this text of scripture as we turn to it now. Our hearts are dependent upon you as we have just sung. We need you. Thank you for the clarity of your word and how it speaks into our lives and calls us to repentance and belief and ultimately great joy in your presence. Thank you for the grace that you will display to us today through this text of scripture and help us to hear you well. And use me this morning, Father, as your instrument to deliver this message that people need to hear so that we can better follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. The title of my message this morning in keeping with our series theme is Marriage in Exile marriage in exile. Any of us can probably imagine that concept, as strange as it might seem. I imagine if you are still on your honeymoon or in that phase of married life, you might enjoy marriage in exile, just getting away with your spouse. If you're a little farther along, especially if you're experiencing some trouble in your marriage or you're just in those ruts of daily living where it's hard to be married, the thought of being in exile with your spouse may not be that appealing. Nevertheless, 
I'd like you to think about where we're rooted this morning and where we're going in regards to what this text of scripture calls us to as exiles, living out our faith, not yet home, and actually doing that with other people. So the the main theme, as I alluded to earlier, is that we are addressed by Peter as followers of Jesus Christ. We're called elect exiles. What does that mean again? That means that we have been loved by God the Father. So much so that he sent his son Jesus Christ to suffer throughout a lifetime of rejection by men, ultimately to be crucified on a cross. But he didn't stay dead. His blood that he sacrificed for us was the atonement or the offering that he made to God so that we could be reunited with God and have that, have that mission accomplished that we could never accomplish. And so he didn't stay dead, he rose from the grave. And our confidence is that if we have come to him in faith, that we have full assurance of pardon, not because of what we have done, but because of what he has done. And furthermore, God the Father has chosen us to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ so that we are no longer hopeful that we can somehow slog it through this life of difficulty and somehow make it to the end and be changed. No, we are loved by God to the extent that he never leaves us, he never forsakes us, and he has the plan outlined for us already, and we are in it. God is that gracious. But it also means, elect exiles, that we have not experienced the fullness of that plan just yet. We're still here amidst the difficulty of everyday life, where we know we sin, you sin, and in the context of marriage, you sin and your spouse sins. And so when you got married, it didn't fix your problems. You actually compounded it by two of you sinners coming together. Yet Jesus knows what he's doing. He knows what he's doing, and 1 Peter is what addresses our context now. And I want you to imagine, if you are in exile with your spouse, it's probably gonna be somewhere up in the far reaches of northern Canada. If you are from there, I apologize but I'm trying to call us to something that's not so far off we can't imagine it. I want you to imagine you're in the far stretches of northern Canada. There's snow everywhere. You're up in a mountain somewhere. You're surrounded by trees. And you're in a cabin. And in the cabin with you is your spouse. There's no TV in the cabin. You have electricity and you have running water, so you're good there. But there's no cell phones in the cabin. There's no work for you to rush away to. There are no kids clamoring for your attention. For the time being, this exile involves just you and just your spouse. And as you sit in that cabin, looking around at the sparse environment, you're looking across a table from each other. What have you brought with you into this exile? What is it that you are hoping that you could talk about with your spouse now that there's nothing to distract you? Do you have a decade past of joys? What, though, are you bringing in terms of hurt, bitterness, lack of forgiveness, and just the skepticism that the person you're sitting across from will ever actually be different? Change. Now imagine that into this cabin steps the sovereign Lord of all, Jesus Christ. And you are not alone in that cabin with your spouse. But up to the table comes the Lord Jesus and he sits down with you. And he is there to talk with you about your marriage. What would he say to you? What would he start to bring up? 
What counsel could he bring to you in whatever shape your marriage is in today that would be the way of hope for you, his way of getting you where he wanted you to be? It's here in 1 Peter chapter three. Jesus' authoritative word to couples who are in the midst of marriage in exile, it has not changed from the first century until now, praise God. Because he knew what he recorded here would be for our good. And it's not without a bit of baggage. As we come to this text of scripture this morning, there are words here that seem to be rooted back in the first century and we wish they would stay there, right? Submission, weaker vessel. All right, what could this possibly mean and how could they possibly help? I want to shed light on that. And as a matter of fact, I want us to know that our theme this morning is this. Marriages thrive when wives submit to their husbands and their husbands honor their wives. You know, nothing has changed. And if the Lord Jesus was sitting down with you at the table, this is what he would present to you. Wife, submit to your husband. Husband, honor your wife. As we go through this text this morning, I hope that it does bring the encouragement that you need so that by the time you leave the cabin and come back to your everyday life and you reintroduce cell phones and TV and jobs and kids and struggles and elderly parents and everything that goes into that mix, you will once again be in the path that the Lord Jesus Christ has for you as his beloved exiles here. So first, we need to get into this first command. Number one, Wife, submit to your own husband. That's point number one this morning. Now, that is verses one to six, and it, it really seems that Peter is doing a disservice to the women by not addressing the men with an equal number of verses. But, but bear with me, brothers, by the time we get to verse seven, you and I are in for it, all right? So there's enough packed in there that addresses us at the very need where we are negligent in our marriages and we need the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ to get us back in line. Now, why does he spend so many verses on wives? Well, let's look at the context. And we have to do the broad context first. If you recall, this passage of scripture is rooted in a broader context. He's not just addressing wives and husbands out of the blue. He's actually calling them to consider their role as husband and wife together in light of the context that he's laying out for us. That began back in 1 Peter 2, verse 13. Here's what that says. The, the principle guiding us. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Another way to say that is, be submissive for the Lord's sake to every human authority. So there's really no caveat here. There's no scapegoat. Well, do it except in this category. We know that there are certain cases where in a submission relationship, we do not submit in the way that the person is demanding if it is for reasons of unrighteousness or we are being called into such a relationship or demand. I'll get to that in a moment. But the principle is this, the broad principle and the context of this marriage relationship is you are in a situation now that God has ordained. And in God's ordinance, in his world, there are authority structures 
And there are those who submit to those authority structures. So I'm setting it up. There's some tension now. Bear with the text. He goes through and he talks about, this is true for us as people who are citizens in a country or a nation or a kingdom. We have an emperor over us or a king or for our case, a president. We are to honor those governing authorities. Our submission looks like that. Those who are slaves to their masters have a type of submission to them so that even if there are some who are not righteous but who are actually wicked, the servant still has a way to yield in submission in a way that pleases God. And when we come to the specific case of a wife's submission to the husband, we see that the first word in chapter three, verse one, is likewise. Now, the specific and immediate context is there in 1 Peter chapter three, verse one. What does that word likewise mean? That could be a whole sermon in and of itself, but here are the general, it's the general consensus of what Bible teachers have agreed on. It could be one of three things. Number one, it could just simply mean also. So when he's saying, submit to the government, submit to your masters. Now, wives, also, you have a submission, submit to your husbands. It just could mean also. And you could see down in verse seven, it begins with likewise there too. That may be a strong case. But in the second place, likewise could mean similar to, or even in the same way. If that's the case, then in the same way as who? Submit in the same way as who? The immediate context pointing back to the Lord Jesus Christ and his submission to those who unjustly treated him or to the slaves and to their submission to unjust masters who abused them? Is that what it's telling wives? The force of the context here, I do not believe it's telling wives you are merely slaves to your husbands. That is not biblical. Nowhere in the Bible do we ever receive that command or that type, that's not true. What I think the force of this is saying is, wives, you have a type of submission under the authority of God to yield to your husbands. That in the ways that these others submit, you too have a responsibility before God to do this. And he's calling wives to recognize the ultimate weight of this authority in your life is not in your husband. And the immediate context points us to the reality that we see here in scripture. Um, Who is speaking this command to the wives? Is it the husband? No. Is the husband telling the wife, be subject to me? It is not. Is it God speaking to the husband and saying, husbands, be sure to tell your wives to submit to you? No, it doesn't say that. The immediate context is spoken to wives so that they will receive what God is saying and they are called to rationally, willfully, out of their own choice, yield to their husband's leadership in the marriage for the sake of the Lord. Now I'll get into that more in just a moment, but I want you to see that this goes so far in the context even to speak to wives who are wives of unbelieving husbands. Look at verse one again. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. At the end of our time together, I'll speak more to the spouse who is in a a relationship of marriage with an unsaved spouse. 
For now I will say, in this culture and time, if a woman was saved in the church and her husband was not, that was unusual. In this time period, the husband determined the religious convictions of the family and the wife followed. So the household idols that the husband would bring in, in the culture of the day, the wife would submit. When Christianity entered the family and the wife repented and followed the Lord Jesus Christ alone, she could not bow down to family idols or to the idols of the gods that the pagans worshiped. What was she to do? Well, Peter speaks into the context and tells the wife how she can go forward. Nevertheless, I will say, this context does not say this is only for the wife of an unsaved man. It actually says, be subject to your own husband so that even if some do not obey the word. So the reality is, this is a command that is rooted in God's general principle of authority and submission for his sake, in his design, in his order. It is directed to wives, not to husbands. And it is given in such a way that it applies across the board to any wife who is married. This is God's principle that he brings to the wife. So what does this submission look like? In that culture, and in our culture today, it seems like all of the models that we could hold up as examples seem to be swallowed up by the other examples where we don't want to see these types of relationships of submissive, underneath loving leadership. So one of the things I think I need to do is to clear up misconceptions. And so before we go into the more forceful side of the text and its commands, I wanna walk through five misconceptions and invite you to consider these things. And maybe you would find that your misunderstanding of submission falls under one of these categories so that we can get the clear explanation of submission in the latter point. Number one, the misconception, that, misconception we need to clear up is that submission is not personal or spiritual inferiority. So when the Bible commands a wife to submit to her own husband, it's not because in the creation order, God made the woman less than the man. God, when he created man and woman, created them both in his image. You can go back and read Genesis 1, Genesis 2, to see the great love that God poured into both husband and wife when he created them. Furthermore, in our text down in verse seven, we see that wives are co-heirs, heirs together with their husbands in the grace of life. I'll explain more what that means, but in principle, it means that God values them both equally for the grace that he has given them is not oriented around their gender or their role. He supplies them with grace for both what their gender and role require. Nevertheless, this has nothing to do with personal or spiritual inferiority or any other type of inferiority at all. Number two, submission does not mean agreement on every issue. It doesn't mean whatever your husband brings to you, no matter how crazy it might be, or on the serious side, how sinful it might be, that you just say, okay, the Bible says I have to obey you, I'll just do whatever you say. Now, if you read the Old Testament, you will find so often the godly picture of wives is that 
they appeal to their husbands and they bring their concerns to him. And if they see something that he is involved with that is not righteous or not good, they will go to him and appeal to him. And I'll get to that later as well. But right now, this does not mean agreement on every issue. Number three, this is not putting your husband in Christ's place. Remember, the whole theme of submission that's running through these two chapters is be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, every authority that God ordains. And so ultimately what the wife is doing when she submits to her husband is saying, Lord, I trust you that you have placed this husband with me and have given him authority. And out of love and respect for you, I will submit to him. And this is my act of worship to you. There's only one Christ, wives, and it's not your husband. Number four, submission does not mean giving in to your husband's sinful demands. I mentioned this earlier, I just want to clarify it here in clearing up these misconceptions. If your husband um, asks you to do something immoral, if he asks you to partake in something that you know the Bible has clearly spelled out is sinful, you are not required to submit to him in that request. However, you are required to speak the truth to love, in love to him and to be a partner with him in how you help him understand what the Bible has to say. And now does this mean you will not suffer or that you will not be hurt by your, by your husband's sin? Well, the scripture testifies and many of you wives sadly know you can quickly be hurt by your husband's sin. Nevertheless, submission does not mean giving in to a sinful demand that you participate in something sinful. And number five, it does not mean quiet acceptance of physical, emotional, spiritual, or verbal abuse. If you are a wife left in these circumstances, please know that submission does not mean being beaten or ridiculed or held up as a worthless object. If this is your situation, please speak to a pastor or spiritual leader or a godly woman and lay out your case before us so that we can understand what's happening with you and where needed, we can prayerfully step in. We are a community of faith, a church, where this is necessary, sadly sometimes, because of sin. Nevertheless, this is what we do as a family. So, saying all these things, what then are some characteristics of godly submission? What, what does it look like? So as we consider that now, the first one that we see is a healthy view of external beauty. Look what it says in verse three. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. So pausing there for just a moment, I want to point out the word adornment is the interesting Greek word cosmos, which is translated elsewhere as world. So when it says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, do not love the world. The world there is talking about the cosmos and that's an organized system that's trying to press you into a mold of lovelessness toward God and infatuation with the world's latest demands. 
And so in this text as well, Peter is saying, don't let your adorning, that which decorates or puts on the outside to represent what is the real you, don't let it be certain types of things. And so he mentions things here. He says, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. Number one, this is not a prohibition on any of these things. Because I've heard this said many times, if he was forbidding braiding of hair and wearing jewelry, he's also forbidding wearing clothes, and that's not what he's doing here. What is he doing? He's saying, put all things in their proper perspective. And in a moment, he'll give the proper perspective. But what he's doing now is calling the woman's attention to not feel the onslaught pressure of conforming your mind, your emotions, and your body to the demands of the cosmos, to cosmopolitan, to anything that screams to you that you must make your body your asset to maintain any kind of hope in this world. Peter is saying that kind of competition is not God's delight. That kind of temptation is the world's ploy to give you a false view of beauty. Now I will say beauty is, an external beauty is a helpful thing. The creation God made is beautiful. The, the Proverbs talk about beauty in relationships, in the marriage relationship in particular. Song of Solomon is chock full of physical descriptions of beauty and the delight in them. And all that to say, women, you, have, you need to have a healthy view of your external beauty. And God says the way to do that, and this is how it relates to submission, is that you cultivate inner beauty. You cultivate inner beauty. So this second point is cultivation of inner beauty. And that is the characteristic that you have to have. Look at, if you will, at verse four. Let your adorning. So again, used in terms of what comes out of you, what you put on the outside, let it start with the inside. Let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable, oh, sorry, imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. I'm once again indebted to others who are helping me through this sermon on submission. One pastor and theologian, Wayne Grudem, this is how he defines submission of a wife to a husband. She calls it the inner, or he calls it the inner quality of gentleness that affirms the leadership of the husband. I'll say that again, I think it's helpful. Submission is an inner quality of gentleness that affirms the leadership of the husband. And you can see where he's coming from here. And what does it mean for a woman to cultivate this inner beauty, this spirit that in God's sight is very precious? What he's communicating is this. Wives have a unique opportunity within the marriage relationship, even when it is hard, even when they are suffering for choices that their husbands have made that they have not made, to cultivate within themselves a bedrock of confidence that allows them to speak and to act in a way that affirms her husband's leadership. And for the Lord's sake, continues to do so. Prayerfully hopeful, 
that he will submit to God and that his leadership will be aligned with God's leadership. Now that's a mouthful, but this cultivation of your inner life has to stem from somewhere. So I I don't know what examples you've had in your lives today, wives. I don't know who you've looked at so that you could get a good understanding of what this submission looks like. But what I would encourage you to do is to find role models who can remind you and show you and even call you out to focus on the inner development of your soul before God and of your trust in him. This hidden person of your heart is the real you. It's not the outside you that you present to others in hopes that they will believe is the real you. It's the real you on the inside. The thing that only God sees. Imagine if you're still at that cabin and you're sitting at that table and the Lord Jesus looks at you, wife, and he says, I know that submission is extremely difficult and I know that it will always be so because of this man that you are married to. Nevertheless, I have called you to this and I know that inside of you there is something that I am in the process of changing so that you will be more and more beautiful, more and more loved, but I love you already. The Lord Jesus is speaking directly to the heart of a wife here this morning to recognize that his process of changing you may be the very thing that you're ready to get out of. The thing that he delights to do to make you more like himself may be the thing that you are struggling the most with this morning, your marriage. If you don't have examples, the scripture gives us one. And the third point, the third characteristic of this submission is what I believe can be called fearless faith. The example that the Bible gives is among the holy women in the Old Testament who hoped in God. Verse five tells us, this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted to their own husbands. And the example that's held out is Sarah. It's very interesting in verse six, it says, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And it says, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. I think Peter has done us a great service in giving us this example, Sarah, for wives today. If you go back sometime and read in the book of Genesis, you will find that Sarah is not that different from you today, wives. I mean, you, you don't live as a nomad in a tent, I know that. But likewise, you probably don't have a whole bunch of female servants helping you with your housework either. All right, so where does the example come in? Here is the example. Sarah was called to follow Abraham and called to go with him out into a future that she had no control over. And God spoke to her husband. And her husband came to her and said, we're leaving our home country and going out there where God has promised that he's going to be with us. I don't know how that would have affected Sarah. The Bible doesn't give us the commentary on it. We just know that she went. And throughout her lifetime, here's where the example is stellar for every wife today. Sarah was married to 
a loved by God, but sinful man. I won't ask you to raise your hand today, but are, are you married to a man that you're certain God loves, but is still sinful? Don't raise your hand, okay? <laughs> it's the reality that all of us face. And Sarah and Abraham, I'm convinced, are put into the Bible to tell us a whole host of theological themes. Number one is that the way they lived their lives in faith toward God is the prototype for every New Testament believer. We don't believe in our own works righteousness or that anything we can do can ever get us to the point where God is telling us to go. It is only by faith that he's with us, that he's in us, changing us along the journey. And Sarah and Abraham were on a journey. Their whole entire story is another theological theme of progressive change. The big word is progressive sanctification. You'll read stories of how Abraham sinned and Sarah followed him into that sin and she herself sinned. Peter does not hold that out as the model to us. What he tells us is all the way up to the point when Sarah was almost 100 years old. There was a time when the Lord visited Abraham and told him, your wife Sarah is going to get pregnant and conceive a son. And Sarah in the tent laughed. And she said to herself, so my Lord, she was speaking about her husband, who was 100 years old, give me a child. And through that whole process of her laughter, of the challenge to her faith, of another step in a life with this man that God had ordained for her to be with, God worked on her life and in her heart to give her the promise that whatever God commands is not impossible. And so likewise, I believe today, the example of Sarah to you wives is that what might seem impossible to you, God is saying, trust me, and I will continue to shape you into the woman that I desire you to be. Trust me that you follow my command, that for my sake, you submit yourself in every way that you can to the husband that I have placed under you, over you. And I will give you grace and I will change you in this entire process so that not only do you have the delight and the peace and the fearlessness that the scripture commands, but even you will have an impact on your husband. This is a promise that's held out to some. So that says that, so that even if some, verse one, do not obey the word, these husbands may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. I wish I could preach so much longer today and teach so much more in terms of examples of what this looks like. If you are in a hard marriage, I wanna recommend a resource to you that my wife has read and recommended to other ladies that I have read and would recommend to you as well. And it's called The Excellent Wife by a woman named Martha Peace. If you have not read that before, you've never even heard of her, you can at least write down her name, Martha Peace. And the book is called The Excellent Wife. I hope you will pick up a copy of that and read it and learn what submission really looks like in the particulars of what you might be facing. So as we transition now, I wonder if there are any wives here struggling with fear. Do you realize the text calls you just to do what is good? That really means in your marriage, 
Learn what the scripture says is just the next right thing to do. What is the next good thing that you can do to love God and to love your neighbor? In this case, your husband who's right in front of you. That is, for the Lord's sake, learn what submission looks like and how to address your husband where he is. And if his leadership is hurting you, that means talking to him in a way that helps him and even causes him to grow in that leadership. Whether he hears you or not, you have an opportunity today to even speak to him and to help him. But ultimately, God is calling you not to fear what he alone controls, your life and his. Now, I want to turn in the last few minutes to husbands, and these verses are packed. You can see in verse seven of 1 Peter 3, likewise is there again. Likewise, in this case, does not mean that husbands submit to wives. That is not in the scripture. But what is? It is the command that husbands will live with their wives in an understanding way. And I've summarized this by honor your wife, husband. Honor your wife. The first thing that you need to do is to spend time with her. When you look at that command, live with your wives, it's not talking about mere cohabitation. What often passes for a marriage really just ends up being your roommates, and you might share a home, you might even share a bed, you ride in the same car to the same church, you have the same kids, but you don't have a healthy marriage. Brothers, the thing that you need to focus on is your wife knowing her. In the scripture, when it says, live with your wives, it's talking about something far different than what we pass off as real life with our wives. Here's what I would say is the typical, and, and actually this is helpful. I got this from a book called Date Your Wife by Justin Buzzard. I recommended one to the women. Men, I recommend this one to you. Date Your Wife by Justin Buzzard, just like the weird bird, all right? He says, this is the unspoken pattern for most of us men. Number one, find a girl you like. Number two, get that girl to like you back. Number three, impress the girl until she becomes your girlfriend and wants to marry you. Step four, relax. That means stop doing those things. And number five, share a home, bills, conflict, kids, and stress with the girl who was your girlfriend. So in other words, all the time and energy and everything that we pour into the pursuit of our wives, we just kind of leave it behind us by the time we get into the relationship. We've made it. That translates into, we had a goal. The goal was get the wife. That goal is checked off. And now we can move on to something else. Now God is telling us by his authority in the word, you are called to pursue your wife. And that's why it says, not only do you spend time with her, but you study her. If you watch the movie Fireproof as well as me, you, you know what I'm talking about here. But let me explain it a little bit more. There was that scene where the guys were talking about their, their wives. And one of the guys says to the other guy, what do you mean study your wife? And he says, well, there's a lot about my wife I don't know. And if it's getting a master's degree, you know, I'm still way down here in elementary school. What does the scripture say? It says, brothers, live with your wives in an understanding way. 
Literally, this means according to knowledge. This means pursuing everything you can to know about her. Some of you know so much about ESPN over the last week. You know very little about your wives. And what you knew and figured out in your dating relationship is not enough to sustain you in your relationship now. Oh, marriages would be saved and revived and put on the right track if husbands would honor their wives. And brothers, I speak as a husband to other husbands this morning. If you believe that the bulk of your problems in your marriage points back to your wife, I'm gonna teach you what to say about that as the correct answer. The problem in my marriage is me. It's me. Now I know your wife needs to say the same thing, but your marriage will never be healed and it will not be put on track the way that God designed it to be unless you are willing to say, the problem with my marriage is me. It starts with me and I have not been pursuing my wife. I'm not trying to beat you up here, brothers, but I'm trying to get us back to where the hope is. Do you realize scripture further tells us in this text, show honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. What does weaker vessel refer to? You know, we might immediately think that it means our wives just are weaker physically and we've got to protect them. We've got to help them. We've got to make sure they're okay. But really, the point here is protect your wife. Protect her. Help her know that no matter what, you are for her and that when she is alone, even when you're on a business trip, you've made arrangements so that she knows she's safe. Someone will call her. You will call her. Someone will check on her so that she and the kids are okay. But never, nevertheless, this means even more than just physical weakness. Think about this, brothers. If God has put you in a leadership position over your wife to lead her in love, that puts her in a vulnerable position. Have you ever thought of it that way? Many of us are tempted to be angry with our wives and what we consider is a weak response to a decision when we need to just move forward. But Peter says, show honor to your wife as the weaker vessel. And what he means by that is, understand that she's putting herself at great risk to follow you. She's putting herself at great risk to do what you're saying and have a little understanding about where she's at so that you can actually heap honor on her and share with her your great love with her. On that, we are called to celebrate grace with our wives. Celebrate grace with her. In this verse, it says, the wife is the heir with you of the grace of life. What this means, brothers, is this. We are called to understand that our wives, as we said earlier, are equally loved by God and put in a position as his beloved child who will receive the full inheritance of likeness to Jesus and all the riches that Jesus possesses. And the way that we celebrate grace with our wives is to remind them of this, to to acknowledge with them And and as a husband, what I'm learning with my wife is to say, yes, I am still a man in great need of Christ. I am still in great need of grace to change. 
and I am pursuing him, I'm so glad that you are with me in this journey. I am grateful that we are partners in the grace of life. And what I needed in God's sovereign plan was your help. And I love you and I'm grateful for you. Men, we could go miles if we just learn that pattern and say those things from our hearts. Ultimately, the last characteristic that I would call you to in the command is to fear God. At the end of verse seven, there is the, the hardest and really the most direct word of warning to a believer in the scripture. And it is this, so that your prayers may not be hindered. When I say fear God as a way to honor your wife, that is not oriented towards your wife at all. It actually starts in your cultivated relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and with God the Father through him. Prayer is the lifeline that Jesus opened up by his death and resurrection so that we could talk to God and so that God hears and answers. You can't lead men without that grace to answer that God answers you with so that you can take a step forward in leadership of your homes. You need to have those prayer lines open and it starts with your recognition of God's provision for you to open it in the first place. But it also has great bearing on your submission to God to honor your wife. If you do not, God says that he will block your prayer life with him. That is a sobering word, but one that is helpful to us to recognize how God is serious. When he puts a person in leadership, he expects that leader to represent him well. Ultimately, Jesus Christ loves his bride and honors her and calls her to submit to him in complete trust. And husbands, we have the opportunity to do that toward our wives and to show her the great love and grace of the Lord Jesus. So finally, some counsel for specific cases. This is the last point, it's very brief. I would say to the Christian in the marriage, you are here today, you are a Christian, your spouse is not. I can't narrow it just to a Christian wife anymore with an unsaved husband because we have both, even here. If you are that Christian in the marriage, let me encourage you with a couple of things. You have the opportunity by your life to present to your spouse the great grace of the Lord Jesus. Not gossiping about your spouse, not yelling at your spouse, not turning um, over every sin that's been against you by your spouse, but actually submitting to God and choosing to love well the spouse that God has given you. But in the second place, you do not have to have any, you don't have to have the weight on you that it's up to you to save your spouse. God alone is the one who rightly holds that authority to work so in your spouse so that any means that he chooses to use at all are effective in that person's life. To the non-Christian in the marriage, I would say that I know that you probably have had bad days as well as good with the person in your life that calls themselves a Christian. And if you are here today, it may be that you have been faithfully coming 
even though you don't believe the things that your spouse does. And what I would encourage you to realize is that in this world of sin and where we fail to follow God, you will notice faults in your spouse. But at the same time, do you recognize that still there is a presence of God's love and favor on your spouse? Something bright that you can't quite explain. A forgiveness that you didn't deserve or a gracious response to you that you did not earn. God is speaking to you today to turn to him and to turn away from your unbelief and to actually see that the community of Christ followers are genuine and that you need Christ and to turn from your sin. And finally, to Christian couples today, I would encourage you not to give up My heart is so heavy in this season with those who would look to their marriage and are ready to give up. Please don't give up. Recognize the grace that is given to you by the Lord Jesus Christ and the word that he speaks to you, whether it's in that cabin in exile or here in the everyday stuff of life, you have the assurance that he is for you, and by his very commands, he calls you to a life of faith and growth and mutual sanctification with your spouse so that you will grow together and so that you will become the people that Jesus Christ wills you to be. Let's pray, and then we'll sing in celebration of that grace. Father, I thank you for this text of scripture. I thank you for the grace that you show us. I thank you for the love of the Lord Jesus Christ, ultimately for his bride and how we are called to follow, how we are called to show that within our marriages. And so, Lord, as we sing, help us to contemplate on what you are calling us to do today and help us together to walk closely with the Lord Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.